Welcome to Stupid Not Stupid. I'm Matt, joined as always by my man Jason, the co-host whose fossilized remains are sure to confound the science of future civilizations. (laughs) That's what I aspire to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jason, this is one of our rare episodes separated by distance. How you doing? Doing well. Yeah, it always seems to be around this time of the year. I'll share with you, this is my real fear for for this one, is that we are separated by distance, by geography. Well, I guess those are the same things. By time (laughs) zone, though. We're yeah. we're separated by time zone, and I'm afraid that with the spare time that I've given you, as you've sat there waiting for my time to catch up with yours, that you've done the unthinkable, Jason. That Which you've is? done research. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be happy to know that I squandered that extra time doing nothing but drinking extra beers. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Well, now I'm now I'm way less worried. What what kind of beer are you drinking, Jason? Uh, well, to the surprise of no one, it is yet again a flying dog. But this time, I, uh, just to change it up, uh, I went with a, a Bloodline, the uh, uh, Blood Orange IPA. Uh, but I uh, okay. I, haven't, I don't think I've had that one. Yeah, it's it's good. I I think I like some of the other flying dogs better, but it's a, it's a tasty beer. But more importantly, I'm drinking uh, a rye whiskey that I got for Christmas this year. It is uh, a local brewery, or excuse me, local distillery uh, that we've talked about before, Catoctin Creek. Uh, they they make a fine product, but this is uh, somebody bought me a, a good friend of ours, friend of the show, Antonio, bought me a, a bottle of the Ragnarok uh, rye whiskey, and I got to tell you, man, it it definitely like if I had not known what it was, it definitely came from Catoctin Creek, but it's one of their better products. <laughs> it's really tasty. I like it a lot. I think we've said this before, but my favorite thing about Catoctin Creek is they have like their original recipe that isn't like a particular, it's so old that it's just like alcohol. Yeah. Like they just call it a spirit. Yeah. Like it, it, it's not a defined kind of liquor. It's just the compound alcohol yes. <laughs> with flavor. Yeah. yeah. So this particular uh, uh, batch is, it's a, a small batch that they did. Uh, it's so small that each uh, stopper for each bottle is a different stopper. For every single bottle. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Well, uh, the, my beverage is not small batch. I'm drinking a black velvet and Coke, and the reason I'm doing that is I've been pretty hard on I've been pretty hard on Canada yeah. lately. Uh, we beat up on them in the states episode, and I felt like I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest, right near the border, and I had to take it easy. I, I thought I'd you know partake of one of Canada's greatest uh, exports to the United <laughs> wow. States. Um, so I stimulated their economy, and I got some black velvet. Man, I think I'm a bigger fan of Canada than you are. I would not call black velvet one of their greatest exports. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you if you think that's stupid, Jason, I guess that means it's time for... Matt and Jason are stupid. You so this is where we uh, look back on a episode of your, in this case, uh, our most recent episode, The Great Mattress Firm Conspiracy. And uh, we try to, I guess we don't try to, we do uh, point out the things that we said in a previous episode uh, that were stupid and we need to correct on the record this time around. So what do you got from our uh, mattress firm? So episode, I just got Jason? three of them. Uh, and uh, no, that, that's actually, a, that's that's a pretty short yeah, list. Yeah, it really is. I think your record's like 12 oh, yeah, or yeah, 15. Yeah. So three is, I, I'm feeling. I'm feeling good about this already. <laughs> so the first one, uh, very early in the episode, uh, we were talking about you know the fact that I was uh, likely to be buying a mattress very soon in the future. And I said uh, the quote, now that I have a real job, I'm going to go buy a mattress. And in the context of the, the conversation, it made it sound as though like I was a bartender when I had, I had 
gotten the, the mattress and that that wasn't a real job. In fact, man, I, I have, you know, I've worked really hard for a whole lot of education degrees and I've worked for a long time at a professional level in Washington, D.C. But the fact of the matter is I don't think I ever worked harder in my professional career than when I was bartending. So it is definitely a real job. What I should have said is that <laughs> I love how the, it's more of like a, a personal correction. It's not like something scientific that someone was right. going to get us on the record for. You just wanted to point out that well, it's really hard to be a bartender. I didn't want to insult any bartenders out there for many, many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> which, is a, which is a large percentage of our listening it, it, audience. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, to that point, though, when I actually inherited that bed, uh, I was actually working uh, at a company doing like phone call advertising. And that's definitely not a real job. So I just wanted to make the differentiation between the two. <laughs> uh, second, uh, we were talking about McDonald's. And I said that McDonald's is a real estate company. And this isn't really a correction. Uh, I just wanted to point out that uh, there are other companies, you know, because we we're I think we had mentioned Coca-Cola at some point. Coca-Cola actually doesn't sell anything. They're just a branding company. They sell the rights to use their name and their their formula. They don't actually even make Coca-Cola. So I just wanted to, to say, yeah, yeah, McDonald's is a real estate company, but at least they sell real estate, right? <laughs> uh, like I said, uh, I, I'm repping the black velvet, but about 30 to 40% of that mixture right. is Coke, Jason. Yeah, Coca-Cola so made by a subsidiary that, uh, <laughs> that has no actual affiliation with Coca-Cola. <laughs> they just pay them money. And then the last one, oh, we were talking about the origin of the term going to the mattresses. And I've gone, you mentioned that this was something about, uh, uh, you know, mobsters, like everybody would hole up in a single house and, and like everybody would sleep on, they'd, they'd bring a bunch of mattresses in, everybody would stay in the same house. And I said it, you know, I had heard that it had something to do with like being a, a reference to going to the mats, like in a wrestling ring or a, a, a boxing ring. It occurred to me as I was listening, re-listening to this last night, uh, that I heard my explanation when I was a kid. And in retrospect, I'm not entirely certain that my source uh, wasn't like an idiota or stupido, as, as they say in Italian. Um, yeah, I may have gotten that source from a, a bona fide idiot. And uh, so I may be totally mistaken on that one. Well, I got mine from Godfather Part 1, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going with Scorsese. So that's all I got. All right. Well, uh, I would give us, what, a B minus? Yeah. That's pretty good. We were yeah, semi I think we're doing all right. on that episode. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's try to up it on this one. So I'll give you your first chance to get something wrong, Jason. How old is the Earth, Jason? Uh, it's what, like 4,000 years? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just when the flood was, man. That's right. Um, my recollection, I, I know that this has recently been uh, evaluated to a closer date, and it, it extended the life of the Earth to some degree, but uh, it's give or take you know, a couple hundred million years. It's it's right around 4 billion years old. 4.5 is where we have it at right now. To there you the, go. The best of our knowledge, 4.5 billion years. So you're in the neighborhood. I'll yeah. accept that. We don't, we'll, right. we won't have to correct that one next week. So uh, <laughs> on that, on that timeline, Jason, how long have humans been around? Uh, not that long. And it depends on where you want to start counting humans as humans, mm -hmm. uh, homo sapiens. Uh, so from what I think we would recognize as modern humans, it hasn't been that long, maybe 150 to 250,000 yeah, no, well, years. Well, conservatively, we're actually going to go this. And you're right. This has been adjusted recently, but the, the scientific consensus uh, currently is around 300,000 years. So we're, we're giving them a little bit of a bump, but for about okay. 300,000 years. That's 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 how long we think humans have been around. But again, yeah, just the, the nature of evolution is that once you get into that last 25, 50,000 years, it gets a little fuzzy. So, uh, and, you know, cavemen didn't have razors, so they got a little fuzzy too, right? <laughs> 
Well, when you're when we're talking about timelines this long, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Like when we talked about the age of the Earth a minute ago, we just did plus or minus five hundred million years, like it was no big deal, right? Right. Um, so th- those are those are difficult figures to wrap your head around. So let's do this. Let's put the entire existence of planet Earth onto a calendar. So January 1st to December 31st. So January 1st is the Earth is born. The Earth becomes a planet. The, the, the object that we stand on, that you and I live and exist on, love, cry, live, die on today, begins on January 1st. And the Earth as we know it now is 12 a.m. on December 31st at the end of that year. So we're spreading the history of the Earth out onto one calendar year. So I'm just going to go over you. I'll go over with you here, Jason. I'll, we'll hit some uh, some highlights in that timeline. So January 1st, the Earth is born. February 25th, life appears. Go right. one month later. March 28th, photosynthesis develops. And then for the rest of March, all of April, all of May all of June, all of July, we don't really know what was going on. We Maybe nothing, maybe nothing that a record exists of, um, but no, no significant geological markers exist in that span of our conversion here of four months um, that are of note in the development of life on Earth so far as we can tell it. Then we get to August, August 16th approximately. Well, wait, wait, mm-hmm. wait. Before, before you jump ahead after saying that, there's a reason that no record exists, right? Mm-hmm. The Earth was a very yep. different place at that time, far more tumultuous and active. And it's so like any possibility of fossilized evidence has just been eradicated yep. through normal tectonic pro- processes, normal v- volcanic processes, you know, uh, different chemical reactions. So it's it's not like uh, we don't know what happened then. We've, we just don't know with certainty what species existed or what the, the process of evolution was taking place at that point. Excellent points, Jason. It sounds like we're already going to agree on this one. Let's continue our journey across the calendar and let's get back to okay. why you agree with me so hard. So we get we get to August 16th, mult, multicellular organisms uh, begin to appear in the fossil record. September 17th, one month later, is uh, sexual reproduction. Nothing in October. We're, we're really only a couple months a couple months back now. November 15th, we get fungi. November 20th, fish. November 22nd, land plants. November 24th, insects. And then we move to December. And this is where basically everything that we kind of really have hard, I guess what we're, I'm going to what I'm going to refer to through the course of this conversation as um uh artifacts. Uh, talking about fossils or things where you can actually hold something in your hand that is indicative of something that existed uh, before us, and you can get actual evidence of it. Um, pretty much all of our understanding of that comes from the month of December, the month we are currently in. Yeah, basically, everything important was born in December anyways, man. <laughs> <laughs> is this where we plug that it is your birthday, Jason? <laughs> before, before we started, Jason made me well, promise not to say that it was his birthday, but today is, in fact, <laughs> Jason's birthday in the month of December. Yeah, that's a good point. And nobody knows when we're recording, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, leaving, leaving Jason's birthday off uh, this geological timeline, December 2nd, amphibians. December 6th, reptiles appear. December 13th, mammals come onto the scene. December 18th, a great day for Jason, one of his favorites, birds appear. Yes. Followed by flowers, December 20th. I didn't know birds predated flowers. That's kind of cool. That is. Then we get to December 25th, only six days ago. That's when dinosaurs 
go extinct. That's because that's when Jesus was born. Then, <laughs> then we get to today. So we arrive at December 31st, today, the day we currently live in. If you stretch out the existence of the earth across one calendar year, uh, hominids walked upright for the first time right. 30 minutes ago. Homo sapiens appear on the scene. Right. 24 minutes ago. Agriculture is practiced for the first time that we can tell, is practiced one second ago. And then the Industrial Revolution began 0.02 seconds ago. Right. So really, humanity with the capability to impact the geological record in a meaningful way that would be you know, detectable at a significant period from now on a scale of this size uh, has had the capability to put its marker down for Point zero two seconds. Yeah, but you know we're punching way above our weight class in that regard. We're we're affecting <laughs> we're well, affecting the ecology. Well, now we are. <laughs> yeah, in that very brief period of time, we've had a huge impact. Well, we we have had a huge impact, Jason, and that I I think that begs the question: Then are we being uh, anthrocentric in our belief that we're the only species over that entire span of time that could have had uh, equally? as significant impact in such a small period of time. Do we need to um, give give history a chance? Maybe we shouldn't be uh, so, so conceited about our place on that calendar. So I think we need to ask ourselves a stupid, not stupid question, Jason. Jason, <laughs> stupid or not stupid, pre-human civilization is possible. So it's, it's possible that there has been another civilization on Earth that predates humanity, or it's likely, or it's happened. So I want to look at it. We, we okay. have three pathways here. Is it possible? Right. Is it likely? And didn't did it happen? So that's that, that's the question I want to I want to hit this. Okay. Week. Uh, this seems like you just want to go back and show that the ants dominated at some previous point and will dominate again. <laughs> <laughs> I literally had to make a mental note to myself uh, in the prep for the episode. I have committed that I'm not going to mention ants in this episode. We're going to make it all the way through here, and uh, I I will not mention ants. That's my commitment to you, Jason. As their ambassador, I'm I'm very impressed by that. <laughs> that's not that's not going to be the only unique thing about this episode. Uh, it's not just that I'm not going to mention ants, but the genesis for this theory isn't from Reddit. It isn't from Quora. It's not from the deep recesses of the internet. And it's not from people who you and I have to award fake doctorates to. <laughs> These, th this comes to us from real, honest-to-goodness PhD scientists who know what they're talking about. So you mean when you said you did your research for this episode, you don't have to put air quotes around it? <laughs> no. When I say I did my research, what I mean is someone who actually is certified to do research did some, and then I read parts of it. <laughs> All right. Well, what what do you got? Okay. So the uh, the the gentleman uh, with whom I guess the, the gentlemen who are credited with bringing this uh, this theory of prehuman civilization into the mainstream are uh, Dr. Gavin Schmidt. You you actually might be familiar with Dr. Schmidt. He is uh, the chair of the Institute for Space Studies at Goddard Space Flight I... Center. Um, I don't know and, him personally, but I have seen him speak. Yes. And and then his associate, Dr. Adam Frank, who's an astrophysicist at the University of Rochester. And Dr. Franks was uh, visiting Goddard one day, and he, he came to catch up with his colleagues at the Goddard Space Flight Center to pose a question to them from an astrobiological perspective. Dr. Frank wanted to pitch his colleagues at Goddard on a concept uh, that if we're looking for civilizations elsewhere in the universe, that it might make sense to try to detect some of the things that we know are detectable from Earth that are indicative of an industrial civilization. 
Um, so things like uh, that might be triggering climate change or any other thing that might be observable for spa from space that only humans could be responsible for on Earth. So as he poses this question to Dr. Schmidt, Dr. Schmidt has an interesting retort to him. He says, that's that's a great idea. You know, we, we can look for signs of industrial pollutants or activity on other planets to try to postulate that that is an indicator of life, but maybe we shouldn't necessarily be looking outward when we pose that question. Why don't we look inward? How do we know that humans are the only example of a civilization on our own planet. And so Dr. <laughs> Frank thought about that for a second. And he said, that's a good question. How come no one's ever asked this before? And so this is where Dr. Frank and Dr. Schmidt came up with their paper, the Cerulean hypothesis. Are you familiar with Cerulean's, Jason? I have heard the term, yes. So I, I think I've mentioned this to you at a couple like uh, Comic-Cons we've been at, but I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't know anything about Doctor Who. But apparently the, the Cerulean's are from an episode of Doctor Who. They're a hyper-intelligent reptilian species that predates dinosaurs um, that Doctor Who discovers when he goes back in time. Uh, that were eliminated, that were went extinct due to climate change billions of years ago, and are undetectable now by humans. So they they named it after a Doctor Who species. I believe the term is billions and billions of years ago. Yeah, <laughs> billions and billions and billions. Um, so they already have instant credibility that they went straight to science fiction yeah. uh, for the title of their serious scientific research paper. So in in the in their paper, the Cerulean hypothesis, Dr. Frank and Dr. Schmidt uh, asked themselves a, a few questions. The first question they asked themselves was, if we were going to detect ourselves billions of years from now, how would we do it? So if a future civilization or humans living billions of years from now wanted to go back and prove that we existed, how would they do that? Now, I'm not talking about the residual effects yet. We'll get to that. But actual artifacts. What are the physical things that, that humans built? So cities tools, you know, anything that we look for from an archaeological perspective now when we try to study previous civilizations, yeah, what could we So find? I think that you're missing the real point here. Like, obviously, the important aspects of a civilization are its pop culture. So we should be looking for movies, video games, uh, uh, online <laughs> chat forums, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, wherever that dump site is for all the uh, the ET games that are buried out in the Nevada desert, the That's secret right. cache of buried ET games. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> So if you if you were going to go look for some video games or some records, Jason, or some awesome punk rock posters, you would want to find uh, an area that had a high concentration of population because then it's more likely that you're going to be able to find stuff, right? right. So if you were going to do that from, let's say you and I have our Indiana Jones hats on a couple billion years from now, and we're going to um, dig up some remains of, uh, of our pre, I guess what we I don't know what our species would be called, our stupid, not stupid species, but uh, and we're in Calahandria, obviously, the macro nation of well, Calahandria. Obviously, they will be bird related and still wearing the Indiana Jones hat, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah Birdman. <laughs> but if you, if you were if you were going to do that, Jason, do you have any idea what percentage of our planet right now is currently urbanized? So, what percentage of the planet do we do have humans built? urbanized cities where there would be a large concentration of human artifacts on a geological scale. Oh man. I I actually used to know this number and I don't recall. It's just, it's astonishingly small. Uh it's like 1% or uh, it's far less than 1% of the landmass is urbanized is like seriously urbanized to the degree that you're talking about. More of it is like farmland or lowly populated. But if you're just so, talking like cities, it's really, really small. Yeah. It, I'm not talking about just landmass, so the whole planet. So approximately 1% of the entire planet is currently considered 
urbanized by modern standards. So considered to be um, habited in a meaningful capacity by humanity. One <laughs> yeah, percent. Of course, you know, urbanized by modern standards. I would be curious to see what those standards are because I've driven across the Midwest, man. <laughs> <laughs> don't 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 hate on Ogallala. Go see our go see our redraw the states episode, but soon to be the sovereign state of Ogallala, not formerly known as the uh, United States Midwest. Um, so only one percent, only one percent of the Earth is urbanized. So you're already searching for a needle in a haystack from a geological perspective. If we're going back and trying to find artifacts that prove that would prove we exist in the future. So right. the, the the authors of the paper extrapolated looking back saying if we were trying to detect our current civilization from an artifact perspective that would be really difficult. So we then have to postulate if there was previously another global civilization, it would be equally as difficult. Right. Now, the obvious counterpoint to this for me is dinosaur fossils, right? So we find fossils of dinosaurs with some degree of regularity. I mean, museums are full of them. Um, there are people who have careers dedicated to excavating them. So naturally, you know, if you were looking for a counterpoint to this, you would say, well, there would still be like bones. There would be things we would find. There would be proof that there was something that populated the earth on a global scale that isn't here anymore. That, that to me was the first thing that felt like it put a hole in it. So uh, agreed. And what you what we find with dinosaur bones is more often than not, like the big finds are groups of dinosaurs. So it's not to belabor the point of this idea of you know over urbanized areas, but basically where you find the most dinosaur fossils are where are at points where the most dinosaurs were gathered at a time that the conditions were correct to create fossils. And it, so right. you don't find like random dinosaurs out in the middle of nowhere very often. It's usually, you know, if you find one dinosaur, you look around the area because there are probably a ton more because they were at a watering a hole more. or yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that initially planted a seed of doubt in my mind and I started to get really depressed because I was like, oh man, I really want this one to be not stupid. <laughs> but then I went back to our calendar, Jason, and I looked at the calendar and I realized dinosaurs only stopped existing on our on our global calendar. Less than a month ago. Yeah, on in Christmas. Fact, they only stopped existing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they only stopped existing a week ago. Right. And then I uh, I looked up, and I don't know how someone uh, worked this out. And I will uh, I will preface it by saying the the response that I read when I Googled this because that's what I did uh, said this is back of the napkin quote unquote back of the napkin math. <laughs> uh, but dinosaur fossils currently emerge at the rate of one every ten thousand years. Now that doesn't account for humans going and digging them up. But oh, they yeah, become yeah. naturally uncovered, yeah, and exposed on the surface. One dinosaur fossil, approximately once every ten thousand years, would become visible on the surface. So we're actively going out and searching for them and finding others. We're not actively searching for these other things at a depth beyond where dinosaurs would exist. We're not digging past the um, the geological strata where we know dinosaurs were and looking for other things to a meaningful degree. I don't think. Um, so. I really started to think, actually, are, but yeah. it's not that crazy to think that there wouldn't be a, a large artifact record of a, pre, of a pre-human civilization. I, I understand what you're saying. So uh, it, if there had been a pre-human civilization, I think it, it would probably have had to exist prior to the dinosaurs, prior to- I agree yeah, with that. Prior to, I would say, even insects and fish. Like, I also agree with we've that. We've got records back to a certain point. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think you're totally dead on there. So we're starting to I think we're starting to hone in on uh, on a window of time where this realistically could have taken place. 
Um, but so we'll we'll get to that. But I just okay. want to close the loop on the uh, the last the last point that the authors of the paper make um, when they're talking about how humanity would detect itself or a future civilization could detect humanity if they went looking for it. And they work it all out. They consult with experts. They do the math and basically come to the determination that it's very unlikely that physical evidence of human infrastructure would exist in any detectable capacity after 2 million years. So if we are we're all wiped out by a pandemic tomorrow, 2 million years from tomorrow, you wouldn't be able to find relics or evidence of our civilization. Oh man, I, I'm I'm a hundred percent certain. Like I I saw this show on History Channel years ago and thought it was mildly interesting. I I I was I was a hundred percent certain that it was like your favorite show in the world. I, it was, I think it was it was like After Humans. I think it was I don't <laughs> after yeah. After Humans. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> and like they were talking about like if human humanity just disappeared tomorrow, how long would it take for the Earth basically to reclaim all of civilization? And it was a shockingly short time. Yeah, but the thing that's awesome about it is that literally they, that's like a show that could have been done in 15 minutes and they stretched right. it out for three seasons. It was glorious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is why I watched like two episodes and you watched all three seasons. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen all three seasons. All right. So the the authors of the paper laid down this initial marker and say, OK, the, the, this is how we would detect uh, a civilization from an artifact perspective. But if there really was a truly global civilization on the scale of humanity, there are a lot of different ways that we could detect them besides physical artifacts. So what are the things that we could look for scientifically that are indicators of the fact that a previous global civilization could have existed? And so they list some of them out. Uh, the first one that they list out, I thought was interesting. God, if you tell me the first one is corporalites, we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> no, the first one, that, the first one that they listed out, I didn't actually know that this isn't naturally occurring in nature, but uh, steroids. So evidence of, yes. of steroids in a fossil record, steroids are manufactured. So the assumption would be if something uh, evolved to the point where it was a global civilization, that steroids would have come into play from a medical perspective at some point in their evolution. Yeah. But again, that would be pretty late in the civilization, right? I mean, we've only had them right. for Which is years? like 0. 0.000002 right. seconds on, <laughs> right. the, uh, on the calendar scale. Um, but they would, yeah. but they would remain detectable. So this is the thing. Sure. Stero- they would, they don't disappear. Uh, yeah. Like they, they're detectable for a geologically significant amount of time. Yeah, they're like plastics. No. <laughs> plastics, plastics, plastics is next. So if there was a global civilization, we the the authors uh, theorize that there would be a detectable layer of plastic or some kind of other synthetic uh, somewhere somewhere in a fossil record that we could detect or go back and find same goes for chlorofluorocarbons yeah. which is CFCs. a fancy word uh, for yeah. aerosols they're, they're the things that have been yeah, eaten away it. the air yep, the uh, uh ozone layer for years yep. yeah and then, and then the last one is uh we would be able to see a a detectable uh, or meaningful change in the uh, the nitrogen record um in the geological record the nitrogen nitrogen levels in the geological record from fertilizers oh, right so nitrogen being extracted from the system and then uh, in areas that were either like deltas or areas of high agriculture, you would you would see a layer of increased nitrogen. In Absolutely, and I think that's a better one than the one I was going to suggest. But the the there is another possibility. Had they gone into nuclear production of any kind, there are lots of different uh, radiological isotopes that do not occur in nature, that are like even at a, a pretty fundamental level of radiological material manipulation 
you can be created by humans uh, that don't go away for a really, really long time. Yeah, well, I, I mean, isotopes by definition are decaying, so they they do they do eventually disappear. But we'll get to yeah. But you can measure the decay, and you can measure the end product, and you can actually like this is how we do carbon dating, right? Yeah. And so you count backwards. Um, so the the authors admit that uh, there doesn't appear to be evidence in the fossil record of these indicators that would be indicative of a global civilization. They just straight up say it. There is no evidence of it um, yep. that we could see yes. as we would expect it. The next place that they thought to look for evidence of a uh, of a global civilization uh, would be off-planet. So it's not that long ago, Jason, that we legitimately, as a species, looked at Mars and wondered if things lived there, like if there were species. Like people saw the the lines on Mars and wondered if they oh, were It was canals. less than 200 like, years ago. Uh, yeah, actually it was... I think almost less than a hundred years ago. Yeah. I, I remember watching like documentaries about the first probes we landed on Mars and legitimately wondering like, are we going to detect life when we land? Like, what are we going to see on the surface? Like, is there water here? Like legitimately. The book that sort of launched my career was a picture book of the first Viking landing. Uh, it was a, it just had photographs from mm-hmm. the surface and the Viking lander literally was sent with three instruments, uh, it, it had a couple of like weather detection instruments and whatnot, but it, its primary purpose, it had three different instruments that were supposed to be life detection instruments. And the overwhelming scientific consensus is that between the results of those three instruments, nothing was found immediately on the surface. In fact, if you look at the way that those those studies were conducted, the, those instruments were designed, n- knowing what we now know about the surface of Mars, they were all inconclusive. Now, I don't think for a second that there is life on the surface mm-hmm. of Mars just because we now understand the chemical makeup of what's on the surface of Mars uh, added to the radiation environment. But, man, that was an audacious mission with no knowledge of what we were looking for. So that's that's just that's just to prove the point that this isn't this isn't like an, an insane idea. Like this is something that only recently we've developed. And we still don't have a of. good beat on it. Right. Like it's still there's still a lot of open question. And, and so why is that pertinent to civilization on Earth? Well, if we did discover life on Mars or some sort of artifact on Mars or some sort of satellite or debris somewhere in the solar system, around Mars, around Earth, wherever we might find it, I think that the most likely explanation wouldn't be life from another planet or some sort of alien debris left behind. A more likely explanation is that it originated on Earth, the place where we know that life has arisen, that, that, life, that, that life that it is hospitable to life. And so this is the point that the that the authors make. If we want to look for evidence of a pre-human global civilization, the places where it could actually be preserved outside of geological processes are on planets that don't have them so or I, in space. So I just want to be clear that what you're postulating is that at some point in the period before fish, before fossilized bacteria and uh, multicellular organisms uh, became known to us from a fossil record, there could have existed on Earth a civilization that was capable of traveling to other planets and leaving evidence that they had existed. I'm saying that the authors of the paper say, if you're going to prove that there was, that's the place you should look. I'm bu- I'm building to the okay. I'm building to this there's going to be a crescendo here Jason I'm I'm building to the point that the authors are going to eventually make themselves they're going point by point here and saying like okay here's this off planet theory we don't have any evidence of that they talked about okay here are these indicators from plastics from fertilizers from aerosols 
We don't have any evidence of that. So, so far, they're, they're, they're not working to prove this theory. They're working to, to say this is how you could prove it and going through each checkpoint and saying, and eh, not this one, and eh, not this one. That's all I'm saying okay. right now. Well, and as we were you know, discussing this episode earlier today, my whole job here is to take your finely oiled narrative and just throw monkey wrenches at it. So. <laughs> well, I, 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 haven't, I haven't sprung my trap on you okay. yet, Jason. So just, okay. just journey with me a little bit further down the calendar. So no, no evidence of synthetic indicators, gotcha. no evidence of off-planet indicators. To date, yes. Though we haven't looked a lot, but yes. To date, yeah. The last, and uh, I think the one that probably is most self-apparent apparent to people that the authors point out is, we'd have to look for fossil fuel production and evidence of climate change, which yeah. is fairly easy to detect in the geological That's record. absolutely right. Ice cores alone are a great way of looking into the past of of the atmosphere, right? Yeah. Yeah. So spe- speaking of ice cores, the, the authors actually zero on in a very specific instance that took place on Earth 56 million years ago. When the Earth passed through something called the oh man, this is going to be our extinctions episode all over again. I've got to name <laughs> name that epoch, uh, the Paleocene e- Eocene thermal maximum, uh, which in the scientific community is uh, uh, commonly referred to as the P- PETM. So that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> so during the PETM, I have no idea if you pronounced it correctly or not, but it was really fun to watch you struggle through it. <laughs> <laughs> but I got the acronym correct, and that's what really matters. Right, so right, so right. during the PETM, the planet's average temperature climbed as high as 15 degrees Fahrenheit above what we experience today. Uh, it was a world, Jesus. a planet with yeah, basically no ice on Earth. A typical summer so at the northern. This is what Kevin Costner made that movie about, right? <laughs> <laughs> during the uh, during the PETM, uh, a typical summer temperature at the North and South Pole would have been seventy degrees Fahrenheit. We can go back and look at the geological record and detect instances of severe climate change and be able to point to them and say this happened. So, if there was a period of immense fossil fuel production and use that led to climate change on the scale of what we see today in the, what are, what are we calling it? The Anthrocene? Is that what scientists call it now? The yeah. Anthropocene? Yeah. The, in the age of humans, um, it would be detectable because we can detect these processes as they occurred naturally over the calendar of the planet. Right. Uh, and to your point, we were talking about ice cores, but my recollection is uh, the discovery that the poles were at uh, seventy degree, seventy degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit at a, at a certain point in history was actually borne out by the fact that when they were taking these ice cores, they they hit rock in Antarctica, and when they pulled it up, they actually found fossilized plant matter. Right. At some point, plants were growing openly. Were growing in Antarctica, uh, and yeah. you know the Arctic is just an ice sheet, but Antarctica actually has landmass. Yeah. Basically, so we've gone through the three real scientific indicators that would persist on a geological scale where we'd be able to detect them, you know, outside of that 2 million year range where artifacts wouldn't exist anymore. And so far, the authors of the paper have said, nope, can't be number one, not number two, not number three, no evidence. But then they make a really interesting point. The PETM, so the significant climate event that we detected, that would be a net that is analogous in terms of the the trajectory of climate change that we're observing on the planet today, took over two hundred thousand years. We're doing it in the span of a few decades, maybe a hundred years, right here on Earth. It is insanely faster than the fastest time that we've observed it in the geological record. Right. So the authors make the point 
that it would be really easy for an industrial civilization to exist, check every single box in the kind of on the evidence list that they've that they've mapped out. And if that civilization only lasted for, say, a hundred thousand years, it would be extremely difficult to detect it in the geological record because the rate at what at which we are doing these things now is so unsustainable that we're likely to destroy ourselves so quickly on in terms of or on the scale of the geological record that would be extremely difficult actually to detect even these massive impacts and the massive uh, shaping of our environment that we're doing now but even if we gave that civilization the benefit of the doubt and say it lasted for a hundred thousand years which is 500 times longer than industrial industrialized human civilization has existed, they make the point that it would still almost be impossible to detect, not because uh, these things aren't detectable on geological scale, scales, but because the activities that are detectable are so unsustainable that the species would wipe itself out before it actually had an, an impact geologically. So let me be clear. What you're trying to say is basically that if a civilization had existed and had had the same kind of uh, ecological impacts that we have had as a society over a long enough time frame, none of those impacts would be measurable. Is, is that It would happen on a comparatively short enough time frame that none of them would be measurable. If you extrapolate out what the impact we're having on the planet from a climate perspective, from a resource consumption right. perspective, and use the, the PETM as a baseline of what basically destroyed the planet last time we were on this trajectory, and you apply that scale and timeline to our activity, humanity basically destroys itself before it has an opportunity to leave a meaningful record of its existence. That's the okay. point the authors make, that there's not enough time for the plastics, the aerosols, all the other things to accumulate for it to actually be meaningful and detectable from okay. a geological uh, and scale. It's like a flash in the pan instead to of a, a long To burn. a degree, I understand uh, and agree with the, the concept because uh, when people talk about like climate change and uh, anthropocentric uh, climate change, this idea that uh, we're killing the planet, the fact of the matter is we're not. We're killing off certain forms of life, including ourselves, but the planet's going to be just fine. And eventually, even if we kill off life, the planet will continue to exist and be just fine. So I, I get that. Uh, my question, the, or the, the thing that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around, I should say, is when you talk about plastics decaying, you're talking about, uh, I mentioned radiological materials, those actually hang around for even in the decay products, hang around long enough that they are measurable in the chemical sense. It doesn't, it doesn't all just bleed away and disappear completely once you've manufactured things like steroids. Like These are things that, that are, from, uh, from a basic mm -hmm. chemical standpoint, you can trace from the starting point of Earth – what was here and what would be possible. I, this is you know, how we've come up with our theories on the beginnings of life, right? This idea of self-replicating -re RNAs that end up eventually forming DNAs. There's a chemical pathway to all of that. That were brought to us by octopuses. Catch our right, octopus right, episode. Right. <laughs> but the synthetic stuff that you create, you can, you can figure that out. There's no chemical way to get there without manipulation. So but what they're but what they're saying is we wouldn't create enough of it before we destroyed ourselves to be detected on the scale of billions of years. <sighs> Even with the massive amount we're creating right now, 
we will destroy ourselves on a geological scale so fast that it won't matter. That's the point the authors okay. are making. Okay. I, 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 it's difficult for me to argue when you're talking about billions of years on a planet that's as tectonically active as Earth. I understand what you're saying, uh, and not just tectonic, but energetically, tech, energetically as active as Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Tectonics are another piece of, I think like the oldest piece of surface on Earth. Now, obviously you can see a lot further back in geological strata, but it is only like a few million years old. I mean, parts of like the Sahara Desert, for example, not that long ago on a geological scale, under the ocean. Lots of places that are under the ocean were on land previously. So if one of these civilizations existed, it's entirely possible that every square foot of surface area that they covered from a terrestrial perspective is no longer on land, that it's completely submerged underwater. So that's the, uh, if you're, that's if the you're talking about just surface area, because I, I agree with you about the strata, you can go much further back. But if you're talking just surface area, I don't think it's even millions of years. I think it's thousands and maybe a thousand years, right? Yeah. The the earth changes very, very quickly. All right. Well, now let's deviate from the paper, even though I, I love these guys who wrote it. And I hope next time we go to Goddard, I can find a way to meet them somehow. But uh, they're really focused on pre-human global civilization. But what about non-global civilization that predates humanity? So I tried to uh, find... Uh, any sort of definitive answer to this, how long has civilization existed? This is actually being refined all the time, but the latest revision, which wasn't that long ago, places the end of the late Stone Age, which is generally, I guess, now anthropologically agreed on as the beginning of civilization, at 44,000 years ago. So, like, again, milliseconds. Yeah. So that, that date has changed literally like 10 times in the past 15 years. There isn't um, definitive proof, but evidence of civilization as far back as 80,000 years ago. But then there's this, there's this gap of nothing between 80,000 years and 40,000 years where pretty much there's nothing that's detectable or observable that we've been able again, to find. Again, like when I was a kid, like ancient Egypt was considered sort of Mesopotamia was considered sort of the beginning of civilization. That mm -hmm. has moved backwards by tens of thousands of years way, in way my back. lifetime. Yeah. So to me though that that moving back and forth but then the gaps in the record are indicative to me, of civilizations arising, trying to get started, not working out, and dropping off. Some element of civilization arising, not working out. When I'm, say when I'm saying civilization, I'm talking about humans or pre-human humanoids that had elements of, I don't know, religion, jewelry, artwork, rituals of some kind. To me, maybe even agriculture. You know, that that is civilization. Maybe a, maybe a better stupid, not stupid question is not was there a pre-human global civilization, but a pre-human civilization of any kind. And when you look at the calendar, this is this is what I found really interesting. So when you look at the uh, on our calendar, so basically the period between multicellular organisms arising and then when we hit December and everything kind of evolves and gets to the point where hominids walk and you start to see these elements of what we consider to be even at a very basic and fundamental level elements of civilization so all the things that we just listed you know religion ritual society um you know tribal and uh tribal activity hunter gatherers elements of agriculture that happens in a four-month window on our scale on that same calendar remember we're going back to the beginning we have march april May, June, 
July, because we're starting in late March, essentially another four-month window that is completely analogous in time, at least, to where we've seen this process play out before, where life did evolve to a point where some of these complex social structures that we call civilization were possible. The missing piece in on the calendar, the missing piece where we, we don't really have anything that's observable, we haven't detected anything, there is enough space in there, roughly 2 billion years, where if something rudimentary could have evolved or developed, it would basically be impossible for us to detect or determine. So I, I understand what you're saying and I see where the ambiguity is, but just given what we understand about the the state of the earth at that time and what we understand about natural selection is not a linear process, but it is a statistically linear process in that like you can't predict there's no you don't go from single cell organisms to multicellular organisms to like you can't trace that directly to humans. It goes through lots of different pathways. But the one consistency is continuing complexity. And if you look at what we have a fossil record for and what we know about, you know, the, the basic chemistry and physics of how life had to have had to have formed that period where we have no fossil evidence, you can make educated assumptions about what was occurring. And nowhere in that is there some weird tangent where all of a sudden you ended up with something complex enough that they could form a society. I'm, I'm not talking about a society. I'm, I'm just talking about maybe at a, a tribal level or think, you know, two degrees beyond the most intelligent. Um, what's a what's a group of apes, a Congress <laughs> or is that owls like a, a, a pack of gorillas, like two degrees beyond the most intelligent primates that we observe today. I'm talking about something to that degree. Yeah. Now, see, if you had gone to the bird route, I might agree with you. But <laughs> I mean, Jason, just looking back at the calendar, right? it is exactly yeah. one hour on our geological calendar from when humanoids walked to the combustion engine. One hour on a scale of a whole year. And you're saying that there's no possibility anywhere in that whole period of time that we got some kind of offshoot, that no, something popped up and at least was able to do something from a cultural perspective that's analogous to what we can see in our cur in our more recent fossil record. Right. What I'm saying is if you go as far back as we have in the fossil record, you go from bacteria to, you know, and I'm jumping millennia to like trilobites that then exist for millennia before you get to something more complex, before you get to, you know, the fish, before you get to insects. And agreed, you know, it's that hour, hour and a half, two hours or, you know, months before you get to uh, even dinosaurs. There was no like social tribe involved. There were packs, mm -hmm. but they didn't leave any uh, uh, there was no there was no tool making. There was no any indication of of communication. Sure. And that's the kind of stuff that you would need to have what you're talking about, like even this tribal level. And there's no evidence in the the historical fossil record to indicate that if we died tomorrow, like the entire civilization, civilization wore itself out, I would expect that uh, whatever life forms came after us, there would still be some impact having to do with how we affected the world. I wouldn't expect that from a tribal level, but I would expect... Uh, well, no, now I'm kind of talking myself into a corner. I was going to say I would expect art or some kind of artifacts, or but what you're talking about is a time period where none of that shit existed. 
or uh, would have been preserved rather. Well, since you're since you're leaning my direction, Jason, let me hit you with one more piece that I think is going to tip you over the edge. Everything that you just listed out from you know dinosaurs, uh, troglobites, and all this different stuff that we can observe in the record, those are those troglobites. are. Tri- yeah, tri- well, troglobites are, uh, that's a science fiction. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. A fa- from yeah. fantasy. Trilobites are a, uh, yeah, an yeah. actual. Yes. Trilobites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of those things were prolific species with, you know, subspecies. And um, there were lots of them, yes. right? Lots and lots and lots of them. We can observe even today uh, areas that have very specific and isolated evolution. Like think about the the, Gal- the Galapagos Islands or uh, do you know about uh, I'm, I'm not going to say this right. Tepui in Venezuela, the the mesa that rises up over the jungle and basically everything that lives up on top of it is completely isolated from all the ecosystems ecosystems around it and have evolved separately. Oh sure, Madagascar is another example that we've actually talked about on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mad- Madagascar is a good example. The thing I like about Tepui in Venezuela. I, Everyone's going to think of the movie, The Lost World. But if you ever read the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the original novel, The Lost World, this is where they go and find the dinosaurs. But one of the things they also find there is a kind of humanoid ape species that has evolved separately. And they stumble into the war, basically, between the humanoids and the humans while they all try to coexist (laughs) among the dinosaurs on top of the mesa. And obviously that's science fiction. But the point is, whether it be on some sort of isolated island or in a unique environment like Tepui, could something, whether it primate, amphibian or otherwise, have evolved and gotten to the point where it did have elements of culture, society, and civilization, but then because of all these uh, external factors, or kind of turning your own counter argument here on its head, because of the volatile conditions that we know eventually became predominant on Earth in that four-month period on our geological scale, been wiped out by natural external factors and are undetectable now. So here's the, uh, this is sort of my last vestige argument here. This is all making far more sense to me, uh, your point at the uh, at this juncture of the conversation. My my real issue has to do with uh, evolutionary complexity, with, with natural selection, and there's nothing indicating that at that at that point you saw anything approaching the intellect that you see underwater today i guess that it's possible that you had some kind of a cephalopod or like predecessor man again cuz i don't do research and i don't even remember the research that i did for the octopus episode how far back do octopuses date? Oh, geez. Uh, everyone go listen to the right. octopus episode and then write but, in and uh, tell us because I can't remember. It's not as far back as we're talking. Like it, it's – they don't predate fish, right? They don't predate trilobites. So that's the most intelligent thing that I think has evolved entirely under the sea. You know, We've talked about you know, dolphins and you know, orcas and uh, – but those are mammals. So they came onto the land and then went back into the ocean evolutionarily. Uh, the likelihood of something having evolved that de- developed enough of an, an intelligence on the sliding scale of intelligence to become social underwater under those conditions that would have then just died out without any uh, fossilized evidence, man, I can't rule it out. I find it far more likely than, say, Bigfoot or the Loch Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) But I find it unlikely just given what we understand about evolution. Not impossible. Uh, And, you know, as I have said many times, when you're talking about statistical probability on a long enough timescale, anything is possible. 
Well, I wasn't going to go there, Jason, but because you brought up the octopuses, I am going to go there. And uh, listeners of the show will remember that uh, we did definitively prove uh, on this podcast that octopuses are of extraterrestrial origin and likely responsible for for much of the genetic diversity that uh, we see here on our planet. But let me pose this to you, Jason. What if there is a pre-human civilization? It's just not a civilization that was on Earth. Are you familiar, Jason, with the prison planet theory? <laughs> We're the Australia of some other. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. So the prison planet theory was developed by American ecologist Dr. Elias Silver. Uh, he states in his book, Humans Are Not From Earth, A Scientific Evaluation of the Evidence, italicized, uh, that humans, uh, humankind did not originate here on Earth. But elsewhere, Silver contends that we are not an evolutionary product of the world, but rather visitors who found ourselves here either by accident or potentially as prisoners. So he ha- he has some interesting evidence here to, to back up his theory. Humans are unlike any other species on Earth in terms of, obviously, their mental capacity, their intelligence. There's absolutely no species on Earth. Well, some of us. (laughs) There's no species on Earth, and this is something we've gotten into on the show, that can create, that has a concept of philosophy or advances in technology. And if we were the natural progression of another species, presumably we would see other species evolving on that same timeline. This is Silver talking, not me. I'm just throwing this out here. Yeah, I hear you. But that... That stands out as an anomaly to Silver. Uh, The other thing that Mr. Silver points out, I don't want to say doctor. I'm not actually sure if he's a doctor, Um, but I'm not as hardcore on this one. We throw doctor around a lot on this episode. Let's go ahead and make him a doctor. (laughs) Okay, Dr. Silver. I'm not as hardcore on this one, but he also points out that humans are the only animal in the quote-unquote animal kingdom that experiences uh, complications and pain as a part of natural childbirth. So a unique and anomalous among mammals on earth that look, he's the doctor. I yeah, can see, I actually, I, dis- I guess the, our listeners don't have the benefit yeah, of yeah. seeing, of seeing Jason shake his head right here. Yeah, <laughs> I completely disagree with this concept that, uh, yeah, uh, the, the idea of, of pain and childbirth, again, going back to birds, I've seen birds laying eggs. Mm-hmm. That does not look like a comfortable thing. That's not childbirth though. That's laying eggs. Uh, it's how is it different? Cause the, the egg hatches. It's still a child. Okay, now we're way off. Now we're way off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I'm just saying. Um, okay, well, there's a the, lot the other of pain point, in bringing yeah. life into the world, and I don't want to. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I, I agree. With you, I agree with you. That's the weakest of Silver's arguments. But he also makes the point that human babies are virtually helpless after birth and develop at an excruciating slow pace. Nowhere else in nature do you see an infant that takes as long to become self-reliant as a human child. Again, if we all evolved from a common ancestor and all originated here on Earth, you would think that those timelines would at least be in the ballpark of being analogous. (laughs) Okay, Jason, you're still a no on this one. All right, well, I'm just going to get the last points that Silver makes. As humans age, uh, we display a bunch of traits that we don't share with with other members of the animal kingdom. We're extraordinarily prone to developing chronic illnesses. Uh, we're the only creature in the animal kingdom that experiences sunburns, which he purports uh, is evidence of the fact that we didn't evolve under the same solar radiation conditions that are uh, that are present here on Earth. Holy! In terms shit. of the range of frequency, when was this guy writing this stuff? Oh, very recently. 
this guy, he, he, he is, uh, he's all the rage among the proponents of the prison planet theory. Uh, yeah, then they have problems. <laughs> <laughs> he, he also makes the point that the range and frequency of uh, light and sound that we see in here is completely and totally different than other, ma- other members of the animal kingdom. Uh, again, Not just true. piling it on here. We don't have a common an- ancestor. We, we obviously it's originated elsewhere. And then... Uh, Jason, this is something. This is something that I think uh, you and I both experience in solidarity. Uh, humankind is extraordinarily prone to back pain and discomfort. Um, that's because we did not evolve in a uh, gravity environment that is the Jesus same Christ. that we experience as a species here on Earth. Our common ancestor evolved in a gravity environment much different than Earth. We were we were put here. We were exiled here. We either crash landed here or were exiled here for our terrible behavior, which does make sense in terms of common ancestors for you, Jason. And this is not our home world. There is a civilization that predated humans elsewhere. And uh, whatever it was, exiled some some creatures here that mated with early humanoids. And we are the hybrid wah, wah. result. So first of all, my bad behavior, I hope, does eventually get me kicked <laughs> off of Earth. But I don't think that that's going to happen. The back pain that you and I experience is because humans weren't really genetically designed to live to the age that we have reached, and they definitely were not intended to sit in cubicles. <laughs> Again, proving that we didn't evolve on Earth. I'm not actually in on Mr. Silver. I just I just wanted to throw that one out as a yep. – uh, just pile on the evidence. I just want to create another degree of reasonable doubt. That's all I'm trying to do here. The whole sunburn thing is like – man, that's like problematic to a huge degree. First of all – like lots of animals, including elephants and even dolphins, are completely capable of getting sunburned. The The difference between humans is those with extreme pigmentation don't get sunburned and those with not, without pigmentation, like me, do get sunburned. That's an evolutionary trait having to do with you know tens of thousands of years of human evolution. And we have – turn that into a concept of race, which has been incredibly destructive and horrible, and it has no basis on anything other than you know, random natural selection having to do with where your ancestors lived a long time ago. So that distinction borders on like really disturbing lines of thought. I'll, uh, I'll say this, Jason. The last time we, we tagged an author in uh, one of the episodes that we posted, he did write yeah. us back and tell us what he thought. So I'll tag Dr. Silver, and we'll see what he thinks about your, your analysis of his analysis. <laughs> totally fine. Yeah, I'm not coming straight out and calling him a racist, but that is on the border of, like, <laughs> He's what racist the hell are you to, talking racist about? Racist to Jason. <laughs> racist to Jason. All right. Uh, all right, Jason. So get, bringing it back full circle here, stupid or not stupid, pre-human civilization, possible, likely, happened. Where do you fall? Uh, possible. Not stupid. It's uh, again, uh, it's difficult to argue against (laughs) a lack of evidence. It's uh, like it's it's a logical fallacy to prove the non-existence of a thing. Probable. I find it highly unlikely. There's a a couple of points that you brought up. The timelines involved, just given statistic probability, it's not it's not completely out of the realm of possibility, but understanding what we have seen about natural selection and the uh, continual increase in complex in complexity and diversity of plausible pathways for different variations of life, it makes it difficult for me to imagine that something was uh, suddenly radically far more intellectual and cultural and uh, 
and, and I see, I, I'm using those in very basic terms that could have created something even re- resembling a tribal structure that we have no evidence for, even in the DNA record. Uh, it's hard for me to envision that. <laughs> pick, pick a side, Jason. Pick a side. I, no, it's it's really <laughs> difficult. So it's hard for me to say that it was possible. Uh, I, I think that it was possible. It's hard for me to say that it was probable. So I... I'm going to go probably stupid um, that it happened. I'm going to go entirely stupid because there's no evidence for it. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you that it was possible. I'm going to disagree with you, or maybe we're kind of in alignment. I'm going to say that it is likely given the short timeline that we can demonstrate with our own species that you can go from walking to landing on the moon. We're talking about a matter of an hour right. on the calendar spectrum. Right. And I'm going to say not stupid that it happened because like you said, on a long enough timeline, extremely unlikely things become inevitable. And we're talking about extremely long timelines. And the thing that pushed me over the edge is I stopped and asked myself, even if we condense that calendar to just the last few days and put it on the same scale, I asked myself, do we really think as a species we know about and have detected and can prove every human civilization that has existed. And I would say a majority of them are probably undetectable oh. in the early timeline. So if you're going to talk about a tribal level, I, I totally agree with yeah, you. Yeah. If on a tribal level, we don't even understand a fraction of the civilizations that have existed in our own tiny little tight window, I think it's highly likely something happened, even if it evolved independently in an isolated situation and was completely and totally destroyed before it could leave its mark on the geological record. I'm saying not stupid, not stupid, not stupid on all three. I got to say, man, I'm pretty weak on my positions on all three of those. Um, This this has been a fascinating episode. I walked in assuming that I was going to say totally (laughs) stupid on all on all fronts. I, I can't. I can't really argue hard against it. All right. Well, let me let's let's leave it all with this. This is how I'm going to close it, Jason. Someone asked this question of uh, Dr. Jason Wright, who's an astronomer at okay. Penn State, uh, when the article came out. So connected <laughs> to the paper, the the Cerulean hypothesis, and this is what this is what uh, Dr. Wright had to say, and I think it encapsulates this perfectly. Uh, he says, of course, no matter what, this is going to be interpreted as astronomers say Cerulean's might have existed, <laughs> even though the premise of the work is that there is no such evidence. But then he goes on to say, then again, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> you, you've been holding that. <laughs> Therefore, the whole... <laughs> proving an axiom. Yep. <laughs> proving the axiom that we that we've fallen back on time and time again on the show. Lack of evidence is, in fact, evidence of it being true. <laughs> That's fucking amazing. (laughs) Agreed. Until next time. 